Hello everyone, or Shi Suren. For my more xenophobic human listeners, Shi Suren being literally, hello and greetings with peace, in one of the numerous dialects within the vast and expansive Xi'an language system. So Shi Suren, and welcome to the second episode of Stars Oratoria, the now longest running Star Citizen podcast. My name is Senate Van Rijn, and I am currently broadcasting to you live from a free-floating planet wandering starlessly through the galaxy. Gods help you if you can find me as it is cold here. For those of you wondering what that strange noise sounding in the background over the Star's Oratoria theme is, we had complaints from some of our listeners regarding the volume levels of the music in our last episode. It would seem that the sensitivity of the auditory implants worn by citizens in these central systems might have been remotely hyper-increased by elements within the government that do not want you listening to, or failing that, enjoying listening to this broadcast. We have since switched to a new frequency to accommodate and, in addition, with our apologies, my ever-generous and lovely Xi'an producer has managed to procure us a rare artifact from the 21st century called a piano. Which is that strange noise you hear now? For the one or two wealthier citizens among you that are familiar with these beauties and know just how hard it is to get your hands on one, don't bother asking how it was obtained. It suffices to say that she has high friends in low places, and a smuggler or two may have owed her a favor, but judging by the glares and hand signals I'm receiving, I've already said too much. Retract those claws, sister. I'm changing the subject. This week, we will talk about RPG mechanics and pick up where we left off last episode, discussing the first-person viewpoint and what gameplay and interactions we might see there. But for now, we'll take a quick break and return with the latest news and updates from Cloud Imperium Games Corporation. Stick around. First up, the news. This week, Cloud Imperium Games released an update regarding pledges, ship insurance, and what to expect in the coming weeks. As some of you have probably noticed, the total pledge counter is still up on the website and the contributions are still trickling in. As of this recording, Star Citizen is now nearing $7 million in total pledges. Now, myself, I did have some uneasiness about the pledge counter remaining on the website. You may remember the poll towards the end of the crowdfunding campaign when it was looking like they'd pull in around 4.5 to 5 million, and the community was asked what we thought about keeping the pledge counter up on the website after the 30-day campaign timer was up. This at the time being to help us reach those loftier stretch goals at the 5.5 and $6 million marks. The community voted overwhelmingly to keep the counter up, understandably, and I actually refrained from voting until I had a better idea of what number they would ultimately reach. My hesitation was due to a desire to see a rapid move from the crowdfunding campaign to the development campaign. When I see that counter now, I can't help but to realize, even subconsciously, that the development of the game proper has not yet begun. Now, of course, if the counter being up helps the developers to get more money to make the game, I'm happy to see it. So if they do plan to keep the counter up for an extended period of time, I would say that I'm most excited to see it begin to deplete. 
the numbers going down will only mean that all of that money is now being transmutated via the powers of time, physics, energy, love, and patience into Star Citizen. Another major thing that was highlighted in the update regards ship insurance, what it's all about, and how it will work in-game. The subject of insurance fraud has been a heated debate topic on the official forum for a few weeks now, and with this update I think the issue can be at least partly laid to rest. The issue of course being, what measures will be in place to prevent shady pilots with lifetime insurance from crashing their ships into someone else's? After all, you can just get it replaced for free, right? We go straight to the insurance FAQ in the update for the direct answer. Quote, Can I use my insurance as an excuse to simply ram other ships to death, knowing I will get my ship back? You can, but this will be a very bad idea as it is inconvenient and time-consuming in getting your replacement ship ready to go again. Additionally, there will be an increasing delay in replacing your ship every time you make a claim within a certain period of time. End quote. Making it inconvenient to replace your ship is a brilliant mechanic to discourage would-be pirates with lifetime insurance. The problem seems about solved. The first drawback that comes to mind is that it will also be just as inconvenient for the poor soul who just had their ship annihilated on their way to visit their grandparents on planet Earth. Such is space life. As with everything, finding that balance between frustration and fun is going to be critical. There are many gamers, myself included, who can enjoy something like DayZ with its brutal, unforgiving gameplay. How close should the Star Citizen universe come to that? There will be no permadeath, of course, but for me, games are at their most memorable when I'm actually afraid of the consequences of being careless. If you need to get to your grandparents' summer estate in Antarctica and choose to take shortcuts through all kinds of dangerous space lanes to get there faster, I'm of the mind that you should face painful repercussions for being unprepared for any dangers you might find there. And how will you best prepare yourself? With your ship, of course. User Fizzy Otter on the Star Citizen subreddit on reddit.com requested details on the playable ships in the game. This leads us to our next segment called Ship a Show, quite self-explanatory, in which we will be highlighting one ship per show, at least until we run out of ships. For a general overview, we go to the Star Citizen ships development document back on the official website. Now, one of the neatest things about the ships in Star Citizen is that they are not just cool-looking, sleek metal designs with a propulsion system and nothing else. Straight from the document, they are fully functioning vehicles with hundreds of components, many of which move and articulate, and the majority of these components should each be affected by combat damage. If a single thruster is damaged, it will affect your control over all of the others. Very ambitious, and totally awesome. For our first Ship a Show segment, we will detail the ship that is nearest and dearest to my heart, the Origin 300i. The 300i is a ship manufactured by Origin Jumpworks GmbH. GmbH, for those curious, being the German equivalent of Incorporated or Limited in German, please forgive my pronunciation, Gesellschaft mit beschränkter Haftung, which is literally a company with limited liability. It's comforting to know that quality German manufacturing and German business standards have survived long into the future, but wait, a jab from competitor Robert Space Industries? Origin Jumpworks is, quote, the BMW of the Star Citizen universe. Their craft are more expensive, sleeker-looking status symbols, maybe more so than they're worth, end quote. 
the 300i itself is a single pilot ship with a max crew of one. It has a mass of 20,000 kilograms and a focus on dogfighting and courier uses. It has an upgrade capacity of 6, a cargo capacity of 8 tons, 2 engine modifiers, a fusion maximum class, 1x TR4 thrusters, 12x TR1, and a number of hardpoints, including 2 class 1s, 1 class 2, and 2 class 4s. Please refer to the development document linked in the show notes for clarification and further details. Aesthetically, the 300i should be similar to that sleek silver Naboo Royal Cruiser many of you might remember from the Star Wars prequels called the J327, also linked to in the show notes. I personally hope it won't be quite that sleek, as I do like some grit and grime in my space opera. But as images of the ship have yet to be released, we can but speculate. So why did I choose the 300i? Well, primarily because it was at the price point that I could afford. If I had the real-life credits, would I have purchased a Constellation? I don't know. I want to believe I'd be able to resist the temptation, but that is a sexy ship that I do hope to own in-game. It's a great thing that people pledged a lot for ships, but part of me wishes that they had chosen different incentives. That same part of me isn't creative enough to come up with alternatives, and if using ships is ultimately what guaranteed Star Citizen reached the $6 million, then who could ask for anything more? I do believe that people wanted to play the game more than they wanted to secure lifetime insurance for their ships, however. And had there been other incentives, I know I still would have pledged the same amount that I did. Campaign backers have the option over the next 12 months to add lifetime insurance to any other ship as well. And while again, that is a great option for the developers to increase funds, it's not really something I'm interested in. I wouldn't want the lifetime insurance on every ship, as that gives me less incentive to get out there and play the game, thereby making the money to pay for things, such as insurance and docking fees, and acquiring the ships themselves. I like having to work within the in-universe game mechanics, and having the out-of-universe concept of lifetime insurance, and as soon as I start the game, having a hangar full of every single ship you could possibly acquire in the game would remove a lot of the incentive of playing the game in the first place. And a lot of the danger and tension in playing the game, because as we addressed earlier with the insurance FAQ, yes, you will face difficulties for getting your ship replaced, but that's mostly tailored to those taking advantage of the mechanic. And for the rest of us, I would imagine that the frequency of destruction is going to be a lot less. But we have lifetime insurance. For someone like myself, where things need to make sense within the game universe, I justify it with a backstory, which serves as a perfect segue to our next topic of discussion, RPG mechanics. Now, RPG is a dirty word or phrase for some people, especially the type of people that are all action, just give me something to shoot. When we talk about RPG mechanics, we aren't talking about turning the game into a Final Fantasy or Elder Scrolls title. Your first mission will not be to kill the giant rats in someone's home. Maybe pirates in someone's home system, but that's a little different. I mentioned having that sense of progression, and at its core, that's really the most important thing you can do when you believably fill or play a role. Doing something, being rewarded for doing it, and then being able to do more things. But of course, that's not all that's in the air when talking about RPG mechanics. Player housing comes instantly to mind. There are people who like to talk down the idea of player housing and maybe how it's really just a distraction from the main game. But having that home away from home, or that headquarters of sorts, is always a great feeling in a game where you're playing a role. Normally when you play a game, and you have a particularly intense session in that game, 
you're going to want to wind down afterward. And you would usually wind down by stepping away from the game and going to do something else a little less exciting or that doesn't require as much of your attention. Games that have that sort of, we, we won't call it homemaking, as that makes too many people uncomfortable. Base building is a good term. Games that have a base building component, and maybe mini games as part of it, allow you to step away from that intense battle you just had and wind down without having to step away from the game itself. Some of my favorite games over the course of the last 20 years tend to include a home or base building component. Skies of Arcadia, Assassin's Creed 2 come instantly to mind. We know that Star Citizen will have asteroid bases that players can control, and I believe that player-controlled carriers can be used as a mobile base of sorts, but what level of customization, upgradability, and overall control we will get is yet to be determined. I unfortunately did not have the opportunity to play Star Wars Galaxies as I didn't have a decent PC at the time it was released, but one thing it was famous for is how customizable its player housing was. If I'm thinking correctly, players could build entire cities in areas of a planet. Now, I'm sure we shouldn't expect anything to this degree with Star Citizen, but having a nice 5th element Corbin Dallas style apartment that we can throw some decorations up in might be nice. Cockpit decorations are already planned, so it wouldn't be a stretch. What minigames might we expect? I believe that Chris mentioned in one of the hard-to-catch Kickstarter comments that minigames weren't anywhere near high priority, but being able to gamble in space bars or between fellow military pilots on your carrier with actual credits would be a great addition. Some type of card game or a Star Citizen-styled version of chess with the Bengal carrier as the king piece, for example, might be the perfect thing between trade runs or combat missions. The addition of these elements serve only to enhance a game's universe, though if it means that obtaining these detract from the core gameplay and development time, I think we can all agree that the ship-based component should come first. This is one reason why the long-term development style that's been chosen for Star Citizen should prove to be a huge benefit to the players, as in two years from now, we may not have mini-games or in-depth player housing, but in three or four years we might have both. But there's much more to playing a role than where your hypothetical character inhabits and what he or she gets up to in their downtime. And that is story. Who are you? Why are you here? What is your motivation? Now I have a problem. Whenever I play games with even the slightest role-playing component, I cannot help to actually imagine that my character is me. What decisions would I actually make if I was this character? As I am a nice and friendly guy, this completely prohibits me from ever being evil, even in single-player games. Sith option in Knights of the Old Republic? Forget it. Renegade in Mass Effect? Not a chance. Though I might have made a couple of Renegade decisions. Am I remembering correctly, or did Shepard actually punch that female reporter? I just wanted to interrupt her and stop the ridiculous interview, but I'm pretty sure Renegade meant giving her a right hook. So obviously in a multiplayer space game, I'll never be able to be a pirate because holy cow, those are actually real people I'm pissing off. I just stole that guy's ship and ruined his real life day. Excuse me while I step away from this game and have an existential crisis. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm no pushover. I would defend myself in real life and look forward to doing lots and lots and lots of defending. And of course, I would operate within the constraints of the universe that I lived in. So if I lived in the Star Citizen universe, it's very likely that I would be a radio DJ with a military-slash-bounty-hunter past, a smuggling and underground railroad type of slave-freeing operation on the side, with a lovely Sean partner that gives me dirty looks when I mention any of that on the air. But how did I get the lifetime insurance? Well, my father was an insurance agent before the war, died valiantly, and as a gift to his family, his favorite ship, 
an Origin 300i, was restored completely by the company and gifted to myself as his sole heir with lifetime insurance. That's how I'll explain it, though I guess 80,000 other people's moms and dads also worked for an insurance company. But hey, it's a big universe out there, and lots of ships are blowing up. Who wouldn't want to be an insurance agent? Another minor immersion-based role-playing element that I would like to address before moving on is names. More specifically, naming conventions. Will they exist, should they exist, and why? Few things pull me out of a multiplayer game quicker than strolling up to a neat-looking character and having a chat box pop up from xxcoolguy27957 83xx. You're a person in this world, not an email address. I believe that Chris mentioned that the names people have chosen for their forum handles will be their names in-game, and I do hope that some adjustments are necessary, but I am sadly doubtful that that will be the case. If I was a game development dictator, everyone would have to have a proper name with proper capitalization and no numbers, unless their character happens to be some type or model of droid and no XXs at the beginning and end unless their character is some type of alien. How you would pronounce those XXs, I do not know. Maybe... But moving along. First-person gameplay. I know we're all excited about it, but what does it actually mean? None of us expect to land on a planet and then, essentially, hear boots up Skyrim or Far Cry for a boundless world to wander around in. We know the basics. Ship-based boarding is the central component, but what about minor details? Speaking of Far Cry, I love that Chris wants your character to actually do something physically if that's what would happen when you engage in action. We saw in the original Star Citizen video that your character's hands will hit numerous buttons and switches in the ship startup sequence. As an aside, I always wondered as a kid why they didn't just have all of the required startup switches right next to each other. Instead of reaching over your head for three switches, down to your left side, reaching under the control column for a few more. Although I'm fairly certain that that's how every one of us wishes we had to start up our cars or computers. So actually seeing your pilot's hands smoothly go through the motions in the startup sequence is a huge joy for me. And I'm excited to see how it will look on bigger ships like the Freelancer and Constellation. I bring up Far Cry because Far Cry 2 specifically does this very well. If you bring up your map as an example, it's not like in most games where you go to a separate screen and fiddle with a user interface there. In Far Cry 2, your character's hands actually come up, holding a map and a GPS, and the game world around you does not pause or otherwise cease to exist. You can run with the map out. If you're driving, it's like it's leaning against the steering wheel. It's overall really immersive, and there are numerous examples throughout the game where you can see this. Vehicle repair is a good one. I'm hoping to actually be able to do ship repairs in Star Citizen in first person and see my character's hands actually popping open a panel and fiddling with cables and wiring and maybe using a blowtorch or something similar. Half the fun of being Han Solo is standing around a hangar repairing your ship while yelling at your co-pilot. What about weapons? I believe as part of a stretch goal, first person melee combat was mentioned. Correct me if I'm wrong. But if so, that could prove to be quite interesting. There is an anime that features space combat in which soldiers wearing suits quite similar to those in the Star Citizen videos do close quarters battle with axes, and it is awesome. If you haven't seen this anime, I recommend it heartily. It is called, bear with me, 
Legend of the Galactic Heroes. The name could not be any nerdier. Between that and Battlestar Galactica, I don't know which is worse to try and get your significant other interested in, but both are excellent. If you want more information about it, find me on the forum or comments elsewhere, and I will happily talk your eyeballs out about it. Truly excellent. Anyway, let me paint a picture for you. Here is what I imagine. I finished up taking on a cargo run at the local space bar a little while ago. I'm in my hangar, yelling at my co-pilot who's screwing up repairs. We get it fixed. I walk over, press a button, and see my character hit a switch. Some hydraulic pistons fire, a gangway is lowered, and I walk onto my ship and down the corridors. I sit down in the pilot's seat and press a sequence of buttons on my keyboard or controller. Maybe I have to get the sequence right. But nothing as in-depth as DCS-A10C Warthog or anything, for those familiar. I hear the engine start to rev, lots of beeps and bloops, maybe air conditioning comes on, and I'm just about ready to go. If I have a co-pilot, maybe we can hit some buttons in sequence together if we're both seated. And then, I can hit the final button to retract the shield over the viewport, and in front of me is an opening that leads to a beautiful city. I give the engine some juice, the ship lifts up, I retract the landing gear, and I fly out into the city. Once I reach a certain height, a cinematic triggers, and then I find myself in space. Ideally, no loading bars or separate loading screens. That is my dream startup sequence. And I hope we see every last interaction actually visually acknowledged by our character's hands flipping one switch or another. Now imagine all of that wearing something like the Oculus Rift. I don't really see how third-person view would work with any of that, considering how cramped a hallway might be on a ship or how it wouldn't be severely jarring with something like the Oculus where you're essentially inhabiting your character's head. Though I do wonder what it would be like to have a camera floating behind my head in real life while wearing goggles to control myself in third person as I walk around, I would have to say that in-game and with that kind of peripheral, first person is much better for immersion especially sitting in your cockpit, as I mentioned at the end of our last episode. Which doesn't even address the issue of player versus player. In a PvP environment, the person flying their cockpit in first person is going to be at a great disadvantage to someone flying in third person that has a much wider range of vision. This would obviously discourage players seeking that first person immersion from using that viewpoint. So whether they will eventually lock it down to just first person or not remains to be seen. Of course, if private servers are given the ability to set parameters, such as you might see in Arma 2 private servers, that could be a good middle ground, some servers being first person only. But I greatly look forward to peripherals such as the Oculus Rift, and we will probably discuss them further in depth in a future show. Next episode, we will be talking heavily about sound direction. What should the music sound like? What should space sound like when you're sitting in your cockpit? What about voice actors? What should the Sean sound like? For now, I'd like to wrap up the show by extending my heartfelt gratitude to you, the listeners, for your kind words regarding our first episode and, more specifically, to some of the community leaders, creators of a few fan sites that generously offer to host this podcast and help in other ways as well. So, Drake Interplanetary, Tabulus Delarum, and Valentina Skunkworks, thank you very much. In the future, once we get a bit more into the swing of things, I plan to have guests from the community on the show to discuss things that are important to them, so look forward to that once my producer and I get into a decent swing of things and a little bit of heat from the government is lifted off of our backs. To all you star citizens, awfully cool, or safe travel, as they say in Sean. 
My name is Senate Van Ryn, and this has been another episode of Stars Oratoria. See you next time. <laughs>